0: A podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, I'm Tim Watt and as always, I'm joined by my dad, uh, John Watt. Hi, John.
2: Hi, it's good to be here.
1: And we're really excited today to have another guest on the show. Uh, That's Melody Redman. Uh, Melody, do you want to start by introducing yourself and saying a little bit about who you are and and what you do?
3: Hi, everybody. My name is Melody Redman. I'm a doctor, so I am specialising in clinical genetics. So I'm a clinical genetics registrar working in the north of England
1: brilliant um we're really pleased to have melody on the show because we we wanted to spend this episode and and next week's show digging into um genetics um and in particular uh a a new kind of nhs program about screening newborns but before we get into all of that um melody do you want to explain a bit more about what it is a geneticist does in the nhs What, what does an average day look like look like for you
3: So clinical genetics is quite a small specialty in the NHS so there aren't that many of us around and we tend to work in regional centres where we'll cover quite a big geographical patch so we're mainly based at some of the kind of bigger hospitals but then we'll often go and do clinics at some of the smaller hospitals as well. So the way that our job works is we kind of, our time is balanced spent between seeing patients directly ourselves, which would either be in an outpatient clinic or seeing maybe an unwell baby or an unwell child on the neonatal or paediatric intensive care unit. And then the rest of our time is spent advising other clinicians and other doctors um, to try and help them find the right genetic test for their patient and help them trying to get to the bottom of what might be going on. So really our role is about trying to help find answers for people with rare diseases that might be caused by um, a problem, a change in the genetic code.
2: So Melody, you, uh, we know one another for some years, and uh, you chose fairly on to, to specialise in this area of genetics, didn't you? So what was it about it that, that, that interested you and, and drew you into it?
3: Yes. Yeah, so before I worked in clinical genetics, I um, worked for a few years in paediatrics, children's medicine. And um, one of the things that I really am interested in is the kind of interplay between science and technologies and healthcare. And one of the things that's really interesting about clinical genetics is we're constantly kind of at the forefront of science and as constantly new. Um, advances in technology and genetic testing that's available. And I find that really interesting from kind of an ethical point of view, thinking about um, what how technology should be used. But then also it's a specialty where communication is really important because often we'll be seeing patients and families at really challenging points in their lives. We may be um, breaking some bad news to them about a result um, and they might have some challenging decisions to make about once they've found out what that result is. Um, so I really value that it's a mixture of science and um, quite heavy on the communication skills.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting because um, in my job previously working as a paediatrician, that was it was a similar kind of mix. And and, and often you have this very stressful and, and and but on the other hand a great privilege when you're having. Very difficult and sometimes very painful conversations with parents aren't you and explaining what the testing has shown and, and trying to explain what, what the implications might be. How do you find those those conversations? Have you had much experience of that so far?
3: I think you're absolutely right that it's a challenge but it's a privilege and, and conversations that we might have nearly every day for that family it will be a conversation that they remember for the rest of their lives and um, that's quite humbling to have that opportunity to really kind of engage with someone at a really vulnerable time. Um, It is challenging and I think one of the important things is for me to constantly remind myself that even though I may be behind on my clinic list, I may be running over time and things, it's really important to give each individual family and each individual patient the time that they need because it, it is you know going to be such a important encounter for them
2: yeah and, and i think that um i i've had experience where parents have relayed back to me what other doctors have said and and because you know some doctor just happened to use an insensitive phrase uh, or said something very pessimistic about their child um it's often those kind of insensitive comments which which probably at the time the doctor didn't think much about but which can haunt a parent can't they even for months or years
3: Yes it's so true, we have to be so careful about the words we use and I know certainly that's something that I often find challenging and I often think oh gosh I wish I hadn't quite phrased it like that and again quite a large part of my job is also writing letters and for me it's really important to really go over my letters very carefully thinking about how it might possibly be interpreted um, because obviously in letter writing that's a different communication skill because People don't hear the tone with which you're writing the letter. So, yes, it's really important um, to be very careful in the words that we're using.
2: That's a real difference in clinical practice, isn't it? Because most of my career, when, when I was working, we wrote letters to other doctors and health professionals. But by and large, the parents didn't see the letters we wrote whereas these days the normal practice is for parents to receive a copy of anything you write don't you so as a result you have to be really much more careful about how you phrase things and and how parents might interpret this.
3: Indeed most of my letters I actually write to the patient and then copy in other doctors and I think that that's quite important when we're using a lot of complex terminology that we use in genetics Um, and it's it's a delicate balance to make sure we're Communicating sensitively, but also including all of the information that's necessary, so that all of the other doctors are up to date with what's going on as well.
1: I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the complexity of the field. Um, I imagine most people you're engaging with, most patients, have never had a genetic consultation or thought much about their genes before they they they're kind of forced to by by medical circumstance. Do you? How do you go about trying to explain some of the? The nuances i think most people are thinking a bit like me who maybe studied genes at school briefly in their science classes and, and have this vague idea that we have these bits of code inside ourselves which determine certain aspects of our bodies but not much more beyond that how do you go about explaining to someone in kind of non-medical terms what what the gene that you found is and what it might be saying about their future
3: so it's really important in every consultation to include quite a, a big chunk of time just explaining concepts and then again reinforcing that with any letters that I send out. And we have a lot of sort of information leaflets that we can give families as well. But I think I always try and start from a a, um, a very basic assumption of someone's knowledge and then I always tell people that they can tell me if, if they know what I'm if they know what I'm trying to explain to them um, but it's always better to assume that people um, are starting from a very basic level especially when they might be quite nervous seeing a doctor um, and they you know don't want to um, appear uninformed and it's really helpful to use things like pictures and images so quite often I use a sort of analogy of of genes being like little instruction manuals or recipe books that help our bodies know how to grow and how to develop and we have a whole library of these um these instruction manuals or recipe books um and and so analogies like that can be really quite helpful and again using that with with pictures to help explain it to families and just kind of trying to um recognize at what stage their understanding is can be quite helpful as well
2: Hmm.
1: i guess it seems like from my perspective you know we see more and more talk about gene therapies and genetic medicine in the news and there seems quite a lot of research and excitement about this as a kind of new frontier for for treating people about you know uh, understanding their genes and and then tailoring particular treatments or medicines based on that is that at all part of your work or research as well that kind of field
3: in my area of clinical genetics we're more involved in trying to reach the diagnosis and then once we've Um, helps the patients reach the diagnosis quite often we'll then pass them on further to um, if they want to be involved with research teams or if there are in some very specific genetic conditions if there are therapies that are available for them then we'll be linking them up with other doctors who can provide those but our role is more in, in trying to reach the diagnosis
2: so this is one of the big issues isn't it in this whole field is that although in theory, and it's will sometimes call this, this word precision medicine, the idea being that uh, using the genetic information will allow doctors to target therapies absolutely to you as an individual, although that's a great <clears throat> theory, in reality the majority of the genetic variants that you are detecting and communicating to parents, there isn't any kind of particular therapy that's currently available. Is that fair enough?
3: That's absolutely right. So the majority of genetic conditions that we diagnose, the the treatment that will be available will be sort of supportive treatments, i.e. we can't stop the condition progressing, um, but we can often intervene in ways. So if we know that a certain genetic condition, for example, is associated with kidney problems, then we might advise um, a kidney scan to check for any of those. There are um, several genetic conditions, um, for example, epilepsy disorders, things like that, where there might be treatments that we know work better in certain conditions rather than in other conditions. Um, and certainly the role for treating genetic conditions is expanding and you know there are there are lots of research studies going on and there are some specific conditions such as um, spinal muscular atrophy where there are um, specific interventions that can be used but there are also lots of other um, possible impacts of having a diagnosis so it's not just about being able to access treatment the other things that might be um involved are just having an understanding of this of what condition they have and being able to link up with other families who have the same condition Um, we can often do personalized letters for school to help them get the right sort of support Um, they might be able to access screening for other conditions that are associated with their genetic diagnosis and there might be implications for other family members and also there are um then options available for families um, to decide if they're wanting to extend their family further or have children um, thinking about reproductive options that are available as well.
1: Do you, do you find it difficult that a lot of this work is really, as far as I understand, is based on probabilities? And I think the lay understanding of genes is that if you have gene Y, it will cause consequence X in most cases it's such a bit more complex than that and we're talking about gene y increases the probability that you might have consequence x and and do you find it difficult to kind of communicate that clearly to to patients yes so
3: there are there are over 20,000 genes that we have and um, genes are in almost every cell of our body Um, and the way that genes interact are just hugely complicated and there's so much that we've still got to learn about um, genetics and how the body works and it's it's such a hugely expanding field with so many unknowns um, at the moment and In our role in clinical genetics, we're mainly looking at conditions where a change in one gene, one of those 20,000 genes, could lead to an illness, a a disorder, Um, but not all of those conditions occur in every single person with that genetic change. That's something that we talk about, um, we call it variable penetrance, and some individuals with that genetic change might not have the disorder, um, whereas others with the genetic change would. Um, and most of the conditions that we see in clinical genetics have a higher penetrance, i.e. if someone has that genetic change, they are more likely to have the disorder. But, you know, even within genetics, so, for example, within cancer genetics, which is a a, a specialty within genetics, that, again, is looking at percentage chances of developing cancer over the course of your lifetime. And so it can be hugely complicated information for individuals to try and process
2: and do you sometimes feel that giving this information uh, when, when someone is a baby or a child, you know, giving information to parents and so on, that it might actually have unintended bad consequences? Are, are you aware of that as a possibility?
3: In children where the, they are experiencing lots of different features, I think getting a diagnosis is nearly always helpful for families because they can say rather than listing all of the features that the child has they can say my child has this condition and that can be really empowering for families however there are definite challenges with that so first of all if they have a very very rare disease where there is only a few children in the whole world with that condition actually all of a sudden they've got a very very small support network um, and it might be that there's only a handful of patients known with that and they they suddenly feel very isolated whereas when they have a general um, genetic undiagnosed condition there's a very very large national support group for that um, called syndromes without a name which is a fantastic organisation so it can be isolating to find that an individual has a very rare genetic condition And then there are also other challenges. So if if we look at the inheritance of that genetic condition, it may be that it's new in a child for the first time. It may be that they have inherited it from their parents and that can cause lots of problems with um, guilt and um, parents feeling it's my fault, even though actually they obviously had no choice in passing on that condition and didn't know about that. And then also, it does pose really challenging questions about sharing genetic information within families. So if there are implications potentially for other family members and challenging decisions about what to do in the future, about having other children um, and if there is a risk of a future child also having that condition. So
2: well, it's, to me, this is one of the fascinating things about why genetics is different from other kind of medical diagnoses, isn't it? So if I'm diagnosed with some kind of problem, you know, usually a medical problem, usually that has implications for me and my future, but it doesn't really have any direct implications for anyone else. Um, but if I'm diagnosed with a genetic and inherited genetic variant then potentially that has life-changing implications doesn't it for other people for my siblings uh, for my parents for my children uh, for for the whole extended family and how you navigate that must be
3: extremely complex it's very complicated for families indeed and particularly you know we live in a society where families are very complicated they're blended there's lots of different people involved and sometimes sadly um, you know people have lost contact with other family members and it does raise lots of difficult questions so should someone's genetic information remain private to them or should they have to share that information when there's potential health health impacts, impacts for others and in our kind of western very individualistic society we may feel that actually that information should be private to us however there are implications for other family members and, and certainly as doctors we also have to kind of very carefully weigh up the potential um, risks and consequences for other family members if that information isn't shared.
2: So are there times as a doctor where you've, you have a duty to breach confidentiality? So even if your patient is saying, look, you know, we've made this diagnosis, but I don't want anyone else in the family to know, um, are there situations where it, it would be right to, to over, override that and tell other people?
3: So we try wherever possible to maintain a patient's confidentiality, but a couple of years ago there was a high court case Um, which was ABC versus St George's University Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, if anyone wants to go away and read about it. And um, to very briefly summarise that, the implications of that, it does bring um, sort of a complexity now around the balancing act of considering maintaining a patient's confidentiality with the potential risks and consequences to other family members. And it is something that we as clinical geneticists have to actively consider i haven't clinically had the, had the experience of having to breach anyone's confidentiality but i have had complex discussions within my team and we would kind of you know we wouldn't leave this on one person's shoulders we would have a team discussion about this is the situation this this patient doesn't want to share information what can or should we do about this and i think quite often um patients who are initially reluctant to share information within a family we can often find ways of of helping them to do that in a more delicate way and sometimes in a way where they themselves might not be directly named um, so it's a hugely complicated area and i think i would you know really want to reassure anyone listening to this that if they see a clinical geneticist that wherever possible confidentiality is upheld and um, whenever information is shared that is normally through them as as a family member we would encourage them to share the information but it is definitely a complicated area
1: i guess there are some um conditions in which you might identify a gene but it doesn't kind of come into play as it were or cause a condition until later in life but it's still kind of untreatable, uncurable. Have you come across situations where maybe your parents have said, Do you know what, I don't wanna tell my child that they have this gene that will later in life make them very sick or maybe even kill them? Like what 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 good is that information gonna do them? Let's just let them be happy and you know, when it happens it happens rather than having it hanging over their heads.
3: Tim, you've highlighted a really important area of, of about genetic testing. And just to kind of expand that a little bit further, so quite a lot of the patients that we see are children. And when we're doing genetic testing in children or in anyone for that matter, one of the potential outcomes is always that we may find what we call an incidental or unexpected finding. What I mean by that is, we're looking for a reason for the for, to explain what's going on with that patient, that child, probably. Um, but actually, because of the way that the genetic testing works, we find something that might not be relevant to them at that time. So, an example would be that if we were testing a child um, using kind of quite a broad panel of genetic testing, we might identify that actually they carry a gene change in a gene called BRCA1, um, which is something that's been in the media headlines a lot over the last few years, which is a, a predisposition to breast and ovarian cancer. Now the thing with that gene change is that the risks associated with that only really start in adulthood and we've now found this information out in a child who you know otherwise that information wouldn't have come to light and that's hugely complicated because not only is there then implications for that child in their future and you know it's a hugely complicated area about how we decide to disclose that information and, and um, you know at what point in life it's right to do that but also um, as we kind of alluded to earlier that's Um, that gene change might have been inherited from either the mother or father and there could be implications for other family members so actually we've been looking for a cause of a child's problem and actually we've opened up a whole other area within the family that actually becomes really important to pursue further.
1: Hmm. That sounds really complex and, and murky and i guess a new and as dad was saying a novel medical dilemma that previous generations of doctors didn't have to wrestle with
2: yeah and i think the general view has been that if this genetic information is going to affect a child <clears throat> while they're still a child then yes it has to be released and, and and dealt with and people are informed if on the other hand it's going to affect them when they're an adult uh, by and large, <clears throat> we should wait until the person reaches 18 and then um, ask, ask them, you know, do you want to know? Um, we know something about you. We've got your what genetic information. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, is that what happens, uh, Melody?
3: So... Depending on what we found, we would then again as a team have a discussion about the wording that's that's on the genetic report, for example so sometimes we can sensitively word it and say we found out something that will be of re- of relevance for when this child is an adult please encourage them to um come back to us at an age appropriate time so sometimes we can kind of delay that sharing of information but in general if we as doctors know something about the genetic results generally we would want to share that with families because we don't want to kind of be hiding information in the example that i just used of the breast and ovarian uh, cancer predisposition that actually even though um might not be relevant for that child at that point in time it might be re- of relevance now for that child's mother um, and so things like that can make it much more complicated because even though for that child, we might not want to kind of share that information right now when they're two years old and it's of absolutely no relevance to them, but actually we might need to share it within the wider family. And so again, that's hugely complicated and it, it's very much, you know, we take individual approaches when these when we get these complex findings. And again, it's always done as kind of a team. Um, but yeah i mean there are just huge challenges that it's really difficult to decide what's best to do on
1: i guess the other thing about genes is that they store other incidental information that you might not be looking for i mean a classic example i don't know if you've ever come across this or heard of this is 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 when you test both the parents and a child and discover that contrary to the story being presented the child might not be genetically related to one of their parents and then who do you share that information with if it was discovered by accident and that kind of thing is that is that a live concern
3: That is a very live concern and indeed I have come across that in families. and we, when we are doing a form of testing called whole genome sequencing, um, which I can, can explain more about later, but when we do that form of testing, ideally we should compare the child with both of their, their biological parents because it helps the lab interpret the results. And whenever we do that form of testing, we always tell families that this will reveal um, whether or not you are the true biological parents. and um, there is ongoing discussions sort of nationally as to if that should always be shared within the family so for example if we found a case of non-paternity where the dad was compared to the child sample and actually we saw that they were not genetically related um, there are ongoing discussions as to in what circumstances should that information be shared and it might not always be shared if we do find that um, but it may be that it is of clinical relevance to share that information if there are risks to other people in the family, for example. Um, so yes, it's a, a hugely complicated area, something that we always warn families about. And then if we do find that, again, it's a discussion of weighing up all of the kind of potential consequences of if we do share that information.
1: Okay, We're kind of coming towards the end of this um this week's podcast, but I wanted to ask before we close: how how does your your kind of faith interact with your work in this field? I mean, it feels like a lot about genetics is is, is quite deterministic. It's a lot about you know saying what is baked into your your cells from the moment you were conceived is telling the story of your future life. Do you ever wrestle with that as a as a Christian as a believer who who thinks that actually there's a bigger story in the universe at play here, or, or how else might your faith interact with your work?
3: I think that my faith is a huge reason that I went into this line of work as well. Um, And I think that it's a really challenging area. And certainly as a Christian, I just have such a great hope within me that even though... there are so many problems in the genome, and we all have um, problems in our genetic code. You know, I have this eternal hope that there will be a time where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, and the old order of things will have passed away, which is from Revelation. So I have that hope in the future, but also I do, um, you know, as a Christian, constantly weigh up all of these sort of ethical implications of decisions that we make, and um, again thinking of of the technologies that we use and what is the best way to use them and you know i i believe that with almost all technologies that we have there are positive ways to use them and there are there are ways that can be more harmful or that can promote health inequalities or have other kind of un, unintended consequences and so for me it's really important to be weighing up those things regularly sort of discussing them with other christians and then trying to have a voice on things where i think it's important to to um, speak out about them.
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember... Your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus's Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. Listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Today, we wanted to, to move the conversation on to a particular new program that's just starting in the NHS. Uh, it's called the Newborn Genomes Program, uh, and it's a plan that NHS is, is currently kind of consulting on and exploring, and hoping to get up running, which would um, sequence and analyse uh, the genomes of, of newborn babies. Um, uh, if i'm right there are there already is some limited uh, analysis of, of, of newborns screened for for a few conditions is that right melody
3: Yes, that's correct. So um, on day five of life, normally, uh, as many parents who are listening to this might remember, um, the baby will have a little heel prick test done um, and then that um, little bit of blood will get sent off. And we normally look for about nine conditions that would be important to know about um, as a baby, because there's important implications for um, treatments that can really affect um, that baby growing up.
1: So I guess what's important to make clear is, is the way that, that kind of gene testing works is that you don't once you get someone's you know a sample of someone's blood you don't just stick it in and then look for the whole and identify all twenty thousand genes that we talked about last week but you you normally look for what's called a panel of particular genes and so if I is the change in this new NHS program is that it would be looking for much much broader range than just the current nine conditions.
3: So the testing would be called whole genome sequencing. And I think it's helpful to just explore what that means a little bit. So whole genome sequencing. So the genome is all of our complete set of genetic information, which includes our 20,000 or so genes. And um, so that that's sequencing, i.e. storing the information around the DNA code of the whole of our genome. However, even though all of that information would be um, sequenced from a kind of laboratory point of view, not all of that information is analysed because there's just so much information there. So what you would do instead is you would apply a panel of genes, i.e. you would only be looking at a certain number of genes um, and you would just analyse if there are, is there anything that stands out, any unusual variation in those genes.
1: And is the intent in this simply to try and capture more unusual conditions beyond those nine that we already look for? Is it just simply about saying we now have a technology or it's affordable enough to actually look much broader than the original nine? Or is there kind of a bigger vision behind this program?
3: There is a big vision behind this program, which I'll I'll talk about Um, but just to say that some of this is all kind of subject to change a little bit because the official pilot for this isn't due to start for another few months yet so it's due to start in mid-2023 so some of the information is not fully decided yet so for example it is not decided how many genes would be looked at and how many genetic conditions would be looked at so that is still to be decided. There are three main aims of the project. So, the first aim that they talk about is identifying rare disease in babies. Um, And the pilot that they'd be doing would be trying to understand how feasible it is to use this test as a way to identify rare and important diseases in babies. Um, And so, you know, as part of that, for example, they'd be looking at how many false positives do we find where we find a genetic change that we think might be relevant and um, have to do further testing on that baby, but then it turns out not to be relevant. Um, a second strand, um, a second aim that they have is about research and trying to understand better um more about genomic information and how we use that kind of big data. Um, And also then potentially opening the door for further treatments um, and sort of the development of new drugs for these conditions that can occur in childhood then the third aim of the project is to look about creating a sort of a lifetime resource where um the genetic the genomic data would be stored across that individual's lifetime and that's kind of thinking about sort of ethical aspects there about sort of risks and benefits of storing that information and what are the practical implications and ethical implications for that family so One part of it is about trying to diagnose these conditions, and then the other two parts are looking at research and using it as a lifetime resource.
2: So it is an extraordinary uh, new kind of development, isn't it? Um, In a way, people have been talking about this for a long time, but it's interesting that uh, Genomics England should be one of the pioneers in terms of planning to take every single baby um store obtain a dna sample shortly after birth uh both analyze it to look for rare diseases but also then put it away lock it away in the laboratory so that for the rest of your life the rest of this child's life the dna is there stored and potentially available
3: yes i mean it's it's a hugely complex area and you know, it's something that's been really important to to watch evolve and contribute to discussions wherever possible because actually this would be a huge shift from what we're doing currently and there are all sorts of potential implications about storing this data and, you know, for example, the parents would be consenting on behalf of the baby and so how do we then manage that do we go back to the child when they're 16 and say okay now you can decide are you happy for this data to still be stored and you know who who should really have the rights over that genetic information Um, and also where do we draw the line in things that we want to identify should we be identifying things that will only affect the child when they are a baby? Or should we look, should we set an age of, well, you know, if it's a condition that appears before the age of five, then that should be our threshold for identifying these conditions. And I think, you know, one of the really interesting, well, challenging areas really will be looking at how it impacts Um, that parent's development of the relationship with their child so if you know your child's going to develop a serious condition from uh, you know around the age of five although of course we can never predict predict these things exactly then actually does that affect the way that you bond with the child the way that you um, treat them as a baby even though there's no direct implications at that time it's hugely challenging and you know there's so many big questions around this
1: one of the things that's slightly confusing to me about the program is that it, it says that they would so you obviously you wouldn't just do the test when the child is born, but as you say, you store the 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 sample in a big kind of library of of, of genomes. Um but they it says they'll be kind of de-identified, um uh, so you can't, I guess, um it's not it's not gonna be listed under your name as it were, it'll just be a DNA sample of a of a human being to allow kind of research and that kind of thing. But then they also say that that it will be a lifetime genomic record, which you could be reanalyzed in 30, 40 years time when we have new technology. So how is that possible if it's been de-identified? I don't quite follow how it's going to be simultaneously this kind of resource for yourself and also a huge kind of library for for other research.
3: We all have a unique um, genomic code, genetic code. So actually you can never truly anonymize someone's um, genomic sequence because it would be unique to them but you can de-identify it by storing the sort of identifying information such as name date of birth etc in a separate area and we do currently have um, something called the national genomics research library which is is um, storing information where families consent their um, genomic sequence is stored as part of this national library and people can apply to access it and they have to go through kind of a, a proper application process so not just anyone could access it but what they could ultimately access is de-identified so without your name information to try and you know if, if it's a researcher who wants to analyze that um Controversially, there are also, you know, potentials in the future that that could be used for commercial reasons, although, you know, there are sort of promises that it would never be able to be accessed by insurance companies, for example, but You know, it's a really important question of who should be able to access that information and what can that information be used for? And we're at very early stages at the moment of this kind of development of this national resource. And certainly through the newborn um, screening, whole genome screening process, again, there's lots of questions about how, how could that information be used in the future?
2: And it does seem as though England in many ways is pushing ahead faster than most other countries in the world in this kind of area Uh, and why do you think that is why should England be uh, seen as as pioneering um, this highly controversial and and experimental approach
3: so there was a commitment in the NHS long-term plan um, to deliver a certain amount of genomic testing so the newborn screening wasn't part of that commitment but there was a real commitment to make um, England and to make the NHS a a pioneer and a world leader in genomic testing and you know if we look back historically if we look back sort of 10 years ago when London was hosting the Olympics David Cameron who was the Prime Minister at the time had announced the 100,000 Genomes Project Um, and again kind of historically we've seen Um, So so the 100,000 Genomes Project was a project to sequence 100,000 genomes, um, which was a huge task. It took um, around six years. And this newborn whole genome um, sequencing project has kind of arisen as a further step out of the success of that project. And we do see over the past and over recent years, there is a real push in our country to be seen as world leaders in this area but we have to be really careful of course when we're pushing forward with new technologies just because we can do something of course it doesn't always mean that we should do something and we need to always be evaluating well what are the potential consequences if we do do this
2: and and is it primarily coming from the politicians is it coming from the genetic scientists themselves um, is it, is it coming from commercial, you know, the commercial potential, uh, or or is it all of those? How do you, what are the drivers behind this? Do you think?
3: I think there's a real combination, and I think that you know, genomic data and this concept of having access to big data, it is potentially a very powerful tool. And there are lots of people who could benefit from that. And um, so I think there are lots of key players who are are really pushing this forward. Um, And so I think, you know, it's the combination of all of those efforts really that are trying to push this forward.
2: And so then the question, of course, is then how as a parent, um, is the idea that every parent would be approached and 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 explain what this uh, whole genome screening program was counselled about the implications um and asked whether they wish their own baby to be part of the screening program is is that the is that the proposal
3: so there there's not a, a crisply clear published plan of exactly how the kind of counseling and things will work um, and i don't don't have any kind of further access to information about that um but I think it is something certainly as a clinician that I think will be a really important area. Whenever we are doing whole genome sequencing as a test, we spend a great deal of time discussing with families the potential implications, and there are a lot of different potential implications. And it's something that families really need a lot of time to consider and a lot of information to consider. And so that sort of counselling about the testing will be hugely important for me as a clinician I have concerns about resources and um, so you know at the moment it's taking nearly a year for us to get a lot of our results back for patients who are doing whole genome sequencing on and you know we have, have a hugely stretched service already and there are huge issues around um, both the sort of clinical genetics side of things and the lab genetics side of things and ensuring that there are enough resources and for this project to go ahead, I think we need to be really careful, acknowledging that there are huge resource issues, and making sure that um, families still get the time that they need to consider if this is actually something that they want to go ahead with.
1: Is there another issue around kind of the concept of giving informed consent? I mean, people will be familiar with the idea that you know bef- before you um, you know go for an operation or or, or any kind of treatment the doctor sits you down and and says you know I need to inform you so that you can give informed consent about whether you want to go ahead with this and obviously as you you mentioned it will be the parents giving consent on behalf of their child but it's quite hard for for that to be truly informed because we don't know what it will mean to store my child's DNA for the whole of their life because we have no idea in 2060 what implications having a full sequence of my genome will have, and what new diseases I might find, what new treatments might be available what the the cost benefit analysis of that will be, so it strikes me that giving truly informed consent for something so far reaching is is quite difficult
3: yeah you 're absolutely right tim um, we We are very careful in genetics when we think about the concept of consent because you know as you've, you've talked about going for surgery a surgeon will often outline all of the possible outcomes so bleeding infection death even etc whereas when we are doing genetic testing because we are potentially testing for so many different things we can't go through every possible outcome so we can't really do this this what we would historically call fully informed consent so the findings that we might get from from testing could be quite complex they could be uncertain they could be unexpected and rather than talking about all of the different individual conditions often what we would do is talk about the the types of results that we might find so for example an unexpen- unaccept, un- oh, sorry, an unexpected finding, um, and so we we often talk about having a record of discussion rather than a patient t- signing a consent form, as might be done for surgical procedures. Hmm.
1: I-, I wonder if you have, if you are aware of, or have any thoughts on on the kind of concerns that some people, including Christians, might have about the kind of implications for society about building up an enormous library of. Of, of children's um, genomes uh, people you know some people fear there might be kind of authoritarian political implications if, if a future government is able to kind of access and identify everyone's genetic information that we're kind of giving away something quite personal and, and quite intimate and, and not really sure if the people that we can, we can trust those who hold on to it I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that angle or how you'd respond to concerns if a parent raised them, some of those issues
3: I think that um, from what I can understand of this process so far that that parents will be given a choice as to whether or not they will allow their the data to also be used for the research purposes. Although again, that's not completely clear. When we are doing whole genome sequencing for, for patients at the moment, we give them a choice as to whether or not they want to be part of that um, library of information. And it's always important to make sure their family understand what they're signing up to. But the, you have raised an issue, a, a bigger issue about sort of that the idea of big data. And I think that we have to be really careful with big data because we've seen historically examples of how this can be really positive. And, you know, we can on a population level identify Uh, through big data we've been able to identify things like modifiable risk factors for certain conditions and that can be really helpful information but we have also seen examples in society of big data being used for commercial gain or for other harmful purposes and so i think you know it is a really challenging area deciding um as an individual if you would want to be if you'd want your um genomic information to be stored that way and as we've discussed genomic information is unique to you so even though it can be anonymized uh, it cannot be anonymized it would be de-identified and that's again quite an important concept to think about carefully and you know as christians we see an example example in in the bible that i often think of thinking about the tower of babel and you know that um if we try and make a name for ourselves, um, we need to be really careful that what we're doing is um, sort of aligning with God's will rather than trying to make make a name for ourselves as a country or as a profession um, because, you know, otherwise there can be a harmful fallout from that. I think big data is a really complex area and there's lots of sort of difficult things to discuss about that.
2: I mean, if you're taking a sort of slightly cynical or fatalistic view, you could say that basically we can't put the DNA genie back in the bottle. Um, ultimately, everyone is going to have their DNA sequenced, whether we like it or not, and it's going to be obtained in by fair means or foul, and therefore maybe it's better to do it in this sort of highly regulated, carefully examined, publicly accountable method rather than in a more covert uh, Whereas I mean, think about the police building up its own DNA database. Um, I I suspect that once a, a, a national database is available, there will be all kinds of implications um, for law enforcement, for um, forensics, of all kinds of, of different implications. But maybe we can't we can't stop that. Maybe it's it's going to happen anyway. What, what do you think about that?
3: I certainly know that the individuals that are running this newborn whole genome sequencing project are very keen on on establishing trust, and they know that trust is necessary for the success of this project. and so they want to kind of encourage that. Um, so I think that's kind of on an individual level, Um, individuals who are pushing this forward really want the public to trust this and therefore are are very careful about how the data will be used. Um, But of course you know over time data can be used in different ways and things that were previously not thought to be acceptable might end up becoming acceptable. Um, Something that always comes to mind for me, I'm not sure if, if many people here have have watched the film Gattaca i would really encourage you to watch it um it's about a sort of um neo dystopian future where um individuals in society are um sort of viewed based on their genetic code and their place in society is determined by their genetic code and it's a really interesting film that explores that further and i think it's really important for us as christians to be really careful of Um, health inequalities that could arise as a result of of, um, of understanding someone's genomic information. Because actually, you know, if you have an increased risk of cancers, for example, in the family, you have no control over that. It's not like you're a smoker and you can stop smoking or that um, you don't exercise enough and you can do more exercise. Actually, you have no influence over your genetic code. And, you know, we should really be careful to be be a voice for the vulnerable and make sure that individuals wouldn't be discriminated in that way. And of course, there is absolutely no intention for that at the present time, but it would be remiss of us to not think about possible ways that data could be misused and to not try and safeguard against those for the future.
1: Yeah, I'd really echo that. Actually, I've seen Gattaca and it's a really fascinating and concerning kind of imagination of what might happen in in the future, around D- DNA testing and, and genomes, and and it strikes me. I mean, I was reading something just the other day about um, a growing kind of use of um, genomic genomic sequencing in in IVF in in the states, in particular, where it's quite unregulated. Which there are certain companies that are now giving um, parents the ch- the chance to kind of c- create several embryos through IVF and then g- genetically sequence each of them and choose the ones not just the ones that don't have you know a predisposition to breast cancer but choose the ones which have genes associated with high intelligence or athletic prowess or, or or various other supposedly desirable traits and and the 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 author of this blog i read was kind of suggesting this could be a kind of novel version of genetic eugenics almost in which you know we are creating trying to kind of meddle and create and, and create a new kind of superclass of humans based on based on their genes
3: Absolutely. And even um, even if we take out of the equation anyone's views on how they feel about rep- reproductive technologies, if we think about who can access these resources, choosing the superior embryos, as it were, of course, it's going to be those that can afford to pay for it. And so even if if, if we don't think about any of the ethical implications of reproductive technologies, we can already see that there will be there would be new health inequalities imposed if if someone that can afford to pay for a superior embryo is then able to do that, as opposed to someone else who can't afford to do that.
2: So I suppose one of the things that's behind this, which I'm really interested in, is is an idea which is often called genetic determinism, which is basically that you know we're 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 biological machines and we're programmed by our DNA and. The more we understand about DNA, the more we're then able to predict um, how people will behave. And, um, and in the end, uh, it, this leads to a kind of devaluing, of, of, of a, a reductionist understanding of what it means to be human. I, I, do you think that, that, that those ideas are, are sort of gaining more currency in popular culture?
3: If we take in a clinical example, so one of the services that the NHS offers is um, predictive testing for Huntington's disease. So Huntington's um, is a really um, sort of um, difficult disorder where um, someone will deteriorate. And if they have that condition, then there's a 50 percent or one in two chance that each of their children will be affected by that condition and in the NHS we offer testing for children once they've you know reached adulthood once they're 18 or above to access testing to see if they will develop Huntington's disease and it's something quite different to a lot of the other testing that we do because um, first of all an individual will have to have quite a lot of counselling before they before we agree to do that testing but secondly if we do find that they do carry the the genetic change that means that they will develop Huntington's we cannot tell them what symptoms they will start with we cannot tell them what age the condition will start at and so they just have this vague understanding of at some time in the future they will develop Huntington's disease now of course there's a million and one things that could happen in between that you know they might get hit by a bus one day before they ever reach the age where they would have developed Huntington's and having that knowledge um for some individuals it's really empowering and they will make different life decisions and you know i saw a great example of of um someone who got really involved with a huntington's disease charity and helping other people because he knew that he some at some point would likely develop that condition but we also um see families where there's um, family breakdown once someone knows that they have that condition they think actually you know I don't want to have my own children I don't want to be with a partner because I don't want them to see this happen to me later in life and so having an understanding of something that um that would happen in the future if you live to the age where you would develop it It's actually has huge implications for the way that you live day to day in the meantime, and it's really hard to know um, if an individual would use that information in a positive way or in a negative way. And even if they do use it in a positive way, it's hard to fully understand what's going on in their mind on a day to day basis of having to process the knowledge that 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 will happen at some point in their life.
1: And I guess further from that, do you think as Christians we need to actively resist the idea that we are kind of prisoners of our biology and that what is written into our genome it determines not just our kind of physical characteristics and whether we have a certain disease, but who we are as people? And actually, as Christians, we have to constantly be trying to re-found our identity in, in who we are in Christ and the image of God, not in what we're looking on the inside of our, of our, of our genome.
3: I couldn't agree more. I think you know our identity as as Christians is as children of God, and we know that the genome is corrupt and mad, and we know that um, we have a hope in in an eternal hope that of restoration. And um, you know some. I, I'm not saying it's negative to always know this information because it definitely for some families can be really helpful and really empowering but it can also be it's just really something that we shouldn't become sort of really preoccupied by because actually yes our identity is as children of God we might be children of God who on this earth have x condition and we must be compassionate to recognize that actually a lot of genetic conditions can be completely life-changing and you know really difficult for families to manage and we must always be compassionate about that but first and foremost we are our identity is in being children of god rather than in our genome
1: well we're kind of running out of time but just, just before we end um melody there might be people listening to this who've who've been quite personally affected by what we have be talking about who have some experience of this uh in their in their own families um is there any kind of resources or any way you could signpost people to if they wanted to pursue this
3: there's a really good um charity called Unique, which we'll we'll share the link for, but it's rarechromo.org. And that's a really helpful website which sort of is quite a generic one um that explores lots of different sort of chromosomal and some genetic disorders as well. For um very specific conditions there are lots of um specific patient support groups as well and i think quite often it can be helpful for individuals to be connected with other families and but also if if this has affected you because you know someone who has a genetic condition or has difficult difficult decisions to make around this area you know it's really important to walk alongside people and to be there to listen to them and explore these areas with because they are new ish areas and they're hard for people to wrestle with and different families will come to different decisions about what's right for them um, so you know walking alongside someone and being there through these difficult um, discussions and difficult decisions can be really powerful as well
1: brilliant yeah thank you so much melody it's been absolutely fascinating having you this week and last week um digging through this really interesting area of genetics um we're so grateful for your expertise and your time um and thanks as always uh john and and thank you to the listener thank you for for going on this journey with us i hope it's you found it interesting and useful um as always there's there's lots of resources including stuff on this area if you want to to read uh or or listen or watch to on on john's website that's johnwyatt.com. Um, And you can get in touch with us um, by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, um, thanks for listening, uh, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier.